0: Good morning again a second time. Uh, Several years ago, my wife and I were eating breakfast at a small restaurant with two other couples. At some point during the meal, one of the guys that was with us asked the waitress a bunch of questions related to her life and she indicated that she was a single mom and that she was just struggling to get by. She had been working at this kind of greasy spoon type of restaurant. It was the type of place where she likely didn't get big tips or anything. After we were done with our meal, we paid for it, and and then the guy who had originally talked with the waitress pulled out a little card from his pocket the size of a business card. He folded it in half, and then he pulled out a $100 bill, and he stuck it in the crease of the card. And then when the waitress came by, he handed it to her, and. And she took it, and when she opened it up and she saw the $100 bill, her eyes got really big, and then they watered up, and it was clear that she was trying not to cry, but was about to lose it. And then we asked her if we could pray for her right there in the restaurant, and she said yes. And so we took a minute to pray for her that God would bless her life and that she would experience a relationship with God. And it was just a really beautiful moment. Every one of us was touched by the action of this one guy who gave that card to this woman. All of us were moved by it because it was an expression of grace. Uh, grace is a theological term. It simply, it means to, to um, give someone something that they don't deserve or they can't earn. It's, it's undeserved or unearned favor. When kindness is extended to someone, especially maybe they don't even know they're going to receive it, but when you show kindness to someone and they know they didn't earn it, they know they didn't deserve it. That is called grace. And that expression of grace and all expressions of grace are really a reflection of what our God is like. Our God is a gracious God. And if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are a recipient of God's amazing grace. And make no mistake about it, none of us deserve to be forgiven of our sin. All of us, the Bible says, are like sheep who just go our own way, every one of us. And, and this is hard for some to think about, but all of us are like rebellious against God. But God in his kindness was willing to send his son to save us, to deliver us, to rescue us from the judgment to come. And so Paul put it this way in Ephesians 2, 8, 9. He said, for you are saved by grace. To be saved is to be delivered from the penalty of your sin. You are saved by grace, by unearned kindness, undeserved kindness through faith. Faith is the means. This is how we receive this. And it's not from yourselves, it's God's gift, not from works, not from doing good deeds, so that no one can boast. It's, it's about God giving a wonderful gift. Now, when we see grace extended in the world in a variety of different ways, I think it does touch our hearts. At least it does mine. And I think it's because God has etched grace DNA inside of us that there's something about what he's hardwired within us that when we see grace extended, we really resonate with it. And I think it's something that prepares us for the gospel message. And I love seeing displays of grace. On just a few occasions, I've watched that TV program, Undercover Boss. If you don't know the program, it's a program where either the owner of a company or a, an executive of the company decides to put on some disguise. And they pretend like they're being hired at an entry-level position. And, and the point is to get in there and see what's happening in the com- company, you know, behind the scenes. What is it like to work for this company? What's it like working for this boss? And it's really a touching program. Uh, They'll get to know these employees, will get to know this boss, not realize who it is. And then, of course, they're shocked usually at the end, when the boss says something to the effect, you know who I am, and they didn't realize. But the most touching moment comes when oftentimes that boss, that executive, that company owner, got to know one or two employees and discovered that that person had a need or those people had a need, and they step up, step up to the plate and they decide to meet the need. And sometimes it's huge. I'll take care of that hospital bill for you. In one case I saw, I'll pay for your college education. I'm going to give you this money. I'm going to give you this vacation. In one case it was a vacation vacation. I'm not someone that gets very emotional, but I have to admit that when I'm watching that, I just kind of lose it a little bit. I mean, if others were in the room, I'd be a little bit stoic, but if I'm alone, it's like, oh, you know, it just moves me so deeply because it's, it's an extension of the, the very grace of God. Now, the main point I want to make here today, and it's not technically my takeaway, but it's the main point. Is this, that since we have been impacted by God's grace, if we're Christians, if we put our faith in Christ, we need to extend it to other people. If we've been recipients of God's grace and kindness, we need to extend it to other people. Now, today we continue this series called Relevant. We're asking the question, is the church really relevant in our world today? Is there a part that the church can play? And a lot of people are saying, no, I just don't see what role the church has. But the first week of this series, I made the point, we are relevant because we have a message that can change the world one life at a time. And when people put their faith in Jesus Christ, they're recreated, they are reconciled with their creator, and they are repurposed. And that life has changed dramatically. Then last week, I made the point that, that we're part of a family. The church offers a family that in some cases, maybe it's a family you never had. Now, my takeaway last week is be the church you want the church to be because I think a lot of times people are very critical of the church, and I'm just saying, no, you be the church you want the church to be, but what would that look like if the church were a family? What kind of place would we be? And I, I said, I suggested anyway, we're a place where people mature spiritually, just like a physical family. You grow physically. A church is a place where you should grow spiritually. It should be a place where physical needs are met, where people look and say, wow, they love one another. It should be a place where unconditional love and forgiveness are extended, which often isn't the case in churches, but it sure should be. We've been forgiven. We're to forgive as we've been forgiven. It's a place where you can make a unique contribution through a gift or ability that God has given to you. You have a place in the family, and it's a place where we can begin to impact the world, which is really kind of the heartbeat of what I want to talk about here today. The difference that we make outside of our doors Now, my takeaway today is this that God invites us inside so we can love those outside. God invites us inside so we can love those outside. We can extend grace to them. Now, immediately, I don't even like the the, the terms. So I'll just say that up front inside, outside. I came up with it, but I'm saying what I mean by this is that when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are placed in the family of God, you are on the inside. And usually you become part of a church family, so you're actually in the church as well. But there are a lot of people that are outside, ones who have never put their faith in Jesus Christ. And I think the church is in a unique position to make a difference outside our doors. And when we do so, it points people to our God and to our Savior. And this has been true of the church all along. As I talked about last week briefly, when there was a need in the church The church rose up to meet the needs. The church is about meeting needs. And by the way, I made a mistake last week. Last week, I told you that the day that the church was born, 2,000 people were added. On day one, it was a mega church. Uh, That that is actually technically true, but the real number is 3,000. I had that wrong. 2,000 were added later, so it became 5,000. But you know, the church historically has been known for making a difference. For example, the church has been responsible for the founding of the prestigious educational institutions in our country. Harvard, for example, it was founded in 1636. Do you know why it was founded? To train ministers, as the other Ivy League schools. They're all founded to train up ministers, to educate people so that they'd know the word of God. That was what they were going to do. By the way, I find it ironic that just this past week, the new main chaplain head chaplain at Harvard is an atheist things have kind of gone a different direction but according to my research hundred and six of the first hundred and eight colleges in this country were founded by Christians that's pretty remarkable because they saw the value of it of helping people learn and then Christians are behind the founding of our hospital system Virginia Smith, in her book, Clean, A History of Personal Hygiene and Purity, writes, public hospitals, per se, did not exist until the Christian period. And that makes sense, because our Savior is the great healer. Today, though, this morning, I want to focus on one main passage of Scripture. The reference is Mark 12, 28 to 34. That's where we're going to spend most of our time. And I want to make a case for the idea that the thing that really matters to God is loving. Loving God, but loving others. And the two are tied together. That's what really matters to God. Now, before I read the section, I want to set up the context for it, what we're going to be looking at. Because the events we're looking at today in a moment happened on a Tuesday or a Wednesday. But our story begins the Sunday before. It's the Sunday we call Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday. And this was the beginning of the last week of Jesus' life on this earth, in terms of his ministry on the earth. And you remember the story of Palm Sunday, how Jesus came into Jerusalem. It was going to be the week of Passover. And he came in riding on a donkey, disciples disciples walking alongside, huge crowds in Jerusalem for this feast of the Passover. Really, the crowd went wild. They were taking off their outer garments and putting them along the road. They were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which is really acknowledging that they realized he was the Messiah. They were putting the palm branches down. It just a wonderful story. Everybody was so excited. Everyone was so thrilled. The Messiah has shown up. Everybody except one group, the leaders. That Palm Sunday event was really the beginning of the end. They were looking for a case against him. The next day, it was a Monday, Jesus made his way to the temple in Jerusalem. He walked in and he saw that they had turned it into a marketplace. They were selling goods and everything in this this temple area where people were supposed to come in and prepare to meet with God. And it was just like a marketplace, a bazaar. And Jesus was furious about it. And he had done this earlier in his ministry at the beginning, but now was the end. And he, he walked in there and he... He turned over the tables. Money went flying. He kicked them out. Birds were flying. I mean, it was really a lot of commotion. He, He said, my house is going to be a house of prayer. That's what my father said, and you've turned it into a den of thieves. Our story begins the next day or the day after that. We don't know if it was a Tuesday or Wednesday. Jesus showed up in Jerusalem again. He showed up at the temple again, and a bunch of leaders from different groups were waiting for him. And they had some questions for him. The first question they asked him was this, by whose authority did you do what you did in the temple? Who told you you can do that? I mean, by what, what authority are you doing this? Go in, who, who do you think you are? I won't read this section, but Jesus' response was brilliant. And he silenced them. He put it in the form of a question and he, he put the burden back on them and they couldn't answer him and it was really brilliant but then we read that the other leaders came together and they decided they were going to find a way to trap Jesus and in the text in which this story occurs the Greek word for trap is a word that's used elsewhere in the Greek language for trapping a wild animal and you begin to see there was a lot of hostility they hated Jesus And he had answered this first question, but now different groups were going to start attacking Jesus. They were going to get him. They were going to try to get him to say something that would get him arrested or even killed. The first group to approach him were some Pharisees, one of the more conservative religious groups, and they wanted to throw a question his way, but they were joined by another group, and this other group was a group called the Herodians. Herodians were were a Jewish group that supported King Herod and his family's dynasty as opposed to King David. And so they were wrong. The Herodians were wrong. And and the Herodians and the, the Pharisees didn't usually get along, but on this occasion, they both came together with a question that they thought they could trap them with. The question was, is it okay to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, it was a good question if you wanted to trap Jesus, because whether Jesus answered yes or no, it would cause problems for Jesus. Either answer. And so they thought they had him. A scholar by the name of Dr. Grasmick explains, a yes answer would antagonize the people and discredit him as God's spokesman. No messianic claimant, in other words, nobody claiming to be the Messiah, Could sanction willing submission to pagan rulers but a no answer that would invite retaliation from Rome oh you don't have to pay taxes to Rome they'd immediately arrest him so if he said yes he'd get in trouble with the crowd because they'd say well you can't be the Messiah then because they thought the Messiah's job was to get rid of the Romans but if he said no then he'd get in trouble with with the other group but once again he answered brilliantly. They said, someone have a coin? And they produced a coin, and he held it up. He said, whose image is on this coin? And they said, Caesar. And Jesus said, well, you render to Caesar what belongs to him. You give him Caesar what belongs to him, but you give to God what belongs to him. And they just stood there, Pharisees, Sadducees, like, ah, they didn't know what to do with it. They didn't fall into his yes-no trap. But there was another group Ready. Another religious group. There are all these sects in, in Bible times. And this second group was the Sadducees. And they wanted to trick Jesus with a question related to the resurrection. Now, the Sadducees, they were a group that did not believe in the resurrection, they didn't believe in a lot of things like angels. And uh, the other thing about the Sadducees that was very noteworthy is that the Sadducees did not accept most of the Old Testament as the Word of God. Their Bible consisted of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the five books of Moses. They rejected all the rest of it. They said no to Isaiah. They said no to Daniel. They said no to the Psalms, Ecclesiastes, all of them. They didn't accept any of those as Scripture. And so if you wanted to get into a theological debate with the Sadducees, you'd, you'd have to find it somehow in those first five books. But they asked Jesus a question about the resurrection And I don't want to go real deeply into it, but they were trying to, they came up with a ridiculous situation that they thought would make the resurrection look ridiculous. The question was there's a guy that had seven wives because each one died and he remarried. So one after another. Well, when he gets to heaven, you know, who's the wife? And Jesus shot him down. He said, You don't understand the power of God and you don't know the word of God. And then he found a scripture from, those first five books that proved that the resurrection was true. It was brilliant. His answer was absolutely brilliant. Now, here's where we begin our story in Mark 12, 28 to 34. Another type of leader showed up. We read, one of the scribes approached. And let me stop for a moment, but scribes were people who were commissioned to, to transcribe the Old Testament word for word. There was very careful work that they did. That was their job, they were were writers, and they made copies of the Old Testament. In the process of doing it though, they became experts in the law, and so scribes were considered like lawyers. So if you had any ethical or theological questions, anything about how you should handle something, they went to the scribes. So this guy's sharp, and he's ready to go. One of the scribes approached. When he heard them debating and saw that Jesus answered them well, he asked him, which command is the most important of all? Now, let me mention at this point that um, I've read this for years and years. I have misunderstood the question my whole life as in, until last week. I had the wrong question. Which is kind of embarrassing because I've taught on this passage before. I was kind of close, but not exactly right. What's the question they're asking? It's not what I thought. Let me give you just a speck of background, but scholars have identified that there are in the Old Testament 613 commands. Moses' law given to the people of Israel from God contains 613 unique commands. 248 of them were positive commands, like honor the Sabbath day, love the Lord your God. These were commands of things you were supposed to do, positive things. 365 of them, one for every day of the year, was a negative command. Don't lie, don't steal, don't cheat, those kinds of things. And the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious leaders endlessly debated the question, which of these commands is the most important? I mean, they would debate among themselves. they, They would try to figure out, you know, if you were to put them all in order of importance, you know, what would be number one? What would be number two? What would be number three? What would be number four? This guy comes up and he asks the question, which command is the most important of all? And it looks straightforward. What I discovered this week is that what he's asking in the Greek language is which kind of command? is the most important, which type of command? I don't know if you see the distinction there. He's asking the question, is there a command that we could use to evaluate all 613 of them? Is there some command that we could use to decide which, is, which are the most important ones? Because sometimes the commands kind of confronted each other, you know, and which, how do we know which one is most important? And so this guy was looking for like a grid through which you could put all the commands and, and you come up with the right answer, some kind of overarching principle that you could use to determine what God wants and what God doesn't. And that's a brilliant question. That's a different kind of question to ask what criteria should be used to determine which ones matter and which ones don't matter as much. A scholar by the name of Dr. Vincent explains it this way. Some thought... That the law about fringes on the garments was the greatest. Let me just stop for a moment, but they, they were supposed to wear tassels on their garments. There are some people in Jesus' day that actually thought that's the most important command get your clothing right. That's why they strutted around, let everybody see. I, I'm baffled by that. Oh, that's really important. It is, it's one of God's commands, but it's not great. He goes on to say, some believe that the omission of washings was as bad as homicide. If you didn't do the ceremonial washings, it was as bad as murder. Can you imagine that? That's, they, they weighed it that heavily. And some, that the third commandment was the greatest, and that was, don't take the Lord's name in vain. Maybe that's the one. It was in view of this kind of distinction that the scribe asked the question, not as desiring a declaration as to which commandment was greatest, but as wanting to know the principle upon which a commandment was to be regarded as a great commandment. What defining principle? And Jesus answered the question in verse 29. This is most important, Jesus answered. Listen, Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. So Jesus began by quoting Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Any devout Jew in Jesus' day or today recognizes that reference. That's called the Shema. It's based on the Hebrew word meaning hear or listen. And the verse goes, hear, O Israel. And Jesus was just quoting from Deuteronomy. Want to know the the, the one? Hear, O Israel, the Lord God is one. There's one God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And so the first part of Jesus' answer here is this, that, that if you evaluate everything through the lens of, does this command really show a love for God? Does this command? Does this command? And when you put it through that lens, suddenly I look at the command about the tassels on your garment and I think, eh, that one's like at the bottom somewhere. Who cares? That's, I mean, you'd obey God if you love Him, don't get me wrong, but I'm just saying if you're looking for commands that matter, that one's kind of far removed from really having a heart that loves God. And, And Jesus was saying that this is the principle you need to use. Now, applying this broadly for us today, I want to say that if we approached every day from the idea, Lord, today I want to do everything I can to show my love for you so every decision I make, I'm going to run it through this filter. I want to do this out of love for you. If I love you, will I do this? If I love you, will I do that? Well, if I love you, will I do this? If we live this way, it would change our lives. So that's, that was his first principle. But then Jesus added a second part that really directly relates to what we're talking about here today. Leviticus 19, 18, he was quoting, love your neighbor as yourself. Here's the second thing that really matters, the commands that are found in the Old Testament law that relate to loving others well. Those are the ones that matter. Now, if you sort all 16 Hundred and thirteen of them through those two principles, love for God, love for other people, you'll come up with the right answer. You'll end up putting the list in a pretty good order, and you would know how to live. Continuing in verse 32, then the scribe said to him, You're right, teacher. I always find this as humorous. Jesus, you know, thank you for the affirmation. You know, you're right, teacher. You've correctly said that he's one and there's no one else except him. And to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is far more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, he said to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And no one dared question him any longer. This scribe's response was remarkable. He understood something that the other religious leaders really did not. Most people, I think, in Jesus' day would have said, well, the most important things are the sacrifices. But if you knew the Old Testament well, you'd realize that God many times attacked their practice of offering sacrifices because although they offered the sacrifices, they didn't treat people well. They didn't love people well. They were dishonest They'd cheat people out of their homes. They would let the guilty go free, and they would arrest those who were innocent. And God said, I could care less about your sacrifices. It's kind of like this idea, I can sin all I want during the week, but then on Sunday, I'm going to go make it right. Let's get, you know, let's get it all fixed here. God said, I, I can't accept that. Micah 6, 7, and 8 from the Old Testament What should I bring before the Lord when I come to bow before God on high? What is it that he wants when I come before him? Should I come before him with burnt offerings, with year-old calves? Would the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with 10,000 streams of oil? Oil was part of their sacrificial practice. Verse 8 is the answer. Mankind, he's told you what is good. And what the Lord requires of you, it's to act justly, to love faithfulness, and to walk humbly with your God. J. A. Martin, a scholar, explains it this way. That relationship, in other words, the relationship with God, which is good, which would be a really beneficial relationship, involves three things, namely that individuals act justly. In other words, they be fair in their dealings with others. They love mercy. That's the word has said from the Old Testament, loyal love. In other words, they carry through with their commitments to meet others' needs. And third, they walk humbly with God, fellowship with Him in modesty and without arrogance. Now, our story ends with this verse 34, when Jesus saw, He had answered intelligently, He said to them, to Him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. No one dared to question Him any longer. Again, in the Greek language in which the New Testament was written, this phrase, you are not far, that statement is emphatic. You could translate it this way, not far are you. That's how Jesus would have said it. Not far are you from the kingdom of God. In other words, you get it. That's the point. You get it. You get it. And we want to get it as well. So how do we apply this today? Well, first of all, just a question of application. Are there some people maybe you need to love better? Maybe you can think through. There's some people you need to love better. But let me apply it in a a little different way. If you go to our website, you'll come across our vision statement. And this is the vision statement. The vision of Chestnut Ridge Church is to be an inviting church that leads people into a growing relationship with God and others. We want to be an inviting church. A church that invites, but a church that's inviting when people come. Welcoming. Leads people into a growing relationship with God and others. We believe that's the most important thing. To help people love God more to help people love one another more. And those two are connected. Don't say you love God if you don't love others. John wrote in 1 John 4, 20 and 21, if anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he's a liar. It's pretty strong. For the person who does not love his brother he has seen, cannot love the God he has not seen. And we have this command from him, the one who loves God must also love his brother. Which relates to my point today, God invites us inside to love those outside. Now, we also, I mean, we want to be loving on the inside as well, of course. But there are a lot of things that we are doing as a church, and I want to see you to see these things through the lens of what we're talking about here today. And when I say this is what we're doing as a church, I don't mean me. I don't mean our leaders. I mean you. You're part of what we're doing. And I want to list some of the things so you understand this is what we're about. One of them is feeding the hungry. Food insecurity is a big deal in our state. This year, you donated 15,000 pounds of food and donated $9,000 to give to the food banks. I think that's pretty remarkable. Around Christmas, we had a Christmas ham dinner giveaway to families that wouldn't have a dinner, to 200 families. And then we support organizations like Pantry Plus and more that give to the needs of people. Second, providing clothing. We do our winter coat drive every year. We support groups like Christian Help. And then uh, we have, you might have noticed out here in the parking lot, uh, a bin from the Ranch Community Store where they're collecting clothing. We made it so it easier for you to drop clothing in there to help. Third is fostering children. We've talked a lot about this, Foster West Virginia. We're trying to raise awareness of the problem, but we're also hoping that some of you will rise up to the occasion and say, I'm willing to foster some children. And then we as a church want to come alongside of you and help support you to say you don't have to do this thing alone. We're partnering with Chestnut Mountain Ranch for a statewide impact and you can get information online about this from our website, Foster West Virginia. We also are supporting local nonprofits. We have partners like Chestnut Mountain Ranch, Christian Help Again, Compass Women's Center, which is to help meet needs of those who find themselves with an unexpected pregnancy, Libera, which is freedom for women and teens, West Virginia Sober Living. that We want to support men and women in drug and alcohol recovery. We're serving local schools. We did our backpack Outreach, 225 backpacks, uh, plus another uh, 3,000 in Amazon gifts that you sent to the church that we put in the backpacks, plus $9,000 in cash to help students so they won't be embarrassed when they go to school. And we did a serve day at the school. We just did this about a week ago. 136 volunteers, 11 schools, three counties. We went to them and said, what can we do to help you? What can we clean? They were really touched by it. We had a teacher appreciation day this past week. We gave out 127 dozen donuts to 22 schools. We said, what you're doing is hard. In addition, we're providing helpful resources like the Real Life webinars that deal with marriage addiction, foster care, job search, and anxiety, and other things. We're saving lives through Red Cross, which last week was another Red Cross Day, hundreds of people's lives have been saved through that donation. And then, of course, we're spreading the gospel through all this, through Compassion, the children's uh, Christmas packages. Some of you have adopted kids uh, through Compassion International. We're helping out in Honduras. We're supporting other groups like Young Life and other ministries as well. Now, where I want to close with this idea. These may be things that we're doing, but our idea is to change the culture, of the church, so that we love, just as a natural outflow. I was talking with Josh Rhodes about this talk, and he said, you know, it's kind of like training wheels, the church. You see, when you're learning to ride a bike, you need training wheels, and, and, and it helps you. But eventually, you remove the training wheels, and then the person rides on his or her own. All these things we're trying to do are the training wheels. We're just trying to be a church that loves well outside our doors. And it is impacting the community. People are coming to see what kind of church we are. Finally, I close this morning with a quote I've used before from John Wesley. It was his rule of life. He said, do all the good you can by all the means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, at all the times you can, to all the people you can, as long as ever you can. Let's pray. Lord, we love because you first loved us. And we are recipients of your grace, and so we want to extend it to those outside our doors. Help us, O Lord, to learn how to love better. Help us, O Lord, to evaluate what we do every day through the lens of loving you and loving others better. Change our hearts, O Lord. Let us be a light to the world in the way we serve. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.